Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley and I'm going to be taking you through the key content in January 2018 edition of the EMJ. Now, it's a new year. It's always a time to look back and reflect. It's a time to think about what we've done, where we're going, what we're thinking about. And if you're interested in that from the journal point of view, I'm going to start you off by suggesting that you go to the EMJ blog. You can find that on the BMJ blog's website or just put EMJ Emergency Medicine Journal blog into Google and it'll take you there. There's a really nice letter from Ellen Weber, who is the the lead editor, as you know, talking about what we've done with the journal while she's been in charge. And I think it's interesting speaking to people about how journals work. Everybody has an opinion on how an EMJ should work or how their journal for their specialty should work. Actually, there's a huge amount of work that goes into it. And I think it's a really nice letter because it explains what's, what we've done and some of the aspects which have changed in the background, which may not, may not be terribly obvious when you read the journal but actually has made substantial changes to the quality and the direction of where we're going. So I'd really like you to have a look at that. It talks about what we're trying to get the journal for, the balance of getting stuff out there for the high-end science stuff, and how we're going to do stuff which is really practical that you can use at the bedside, and how do we manage that balance, how the impact factor has changed, how we started using statisticians for all the papers, how we've gone through a much more checklist-based approach when we're dealing with authors and uh, researchers and scientists. So I'd be really interested to know what you think of that. I, I find it very, very useful, even being on the team. It also highlights the great work that's done in the background by the EMJ editorial admin team, who do a tremendous amount of work with getting everything together on time in the right place in the right order and hopefully with the right words so with that in mind go and have a look at that please what about the actual January 2018 issue well reading from Ellen Weber who took the lead for January 2018 and did the primary survey for us there's quite a few things going on um she talks about embarking on new year bringing to mind this idea of father time with his sickle and hourglass walking off the page followed by baby new year clad in a diaper and a top hat Ellen is American. She's allowed to say diaper. And um, a quick Google search for this image also reveals some sort of recent modifications. Father Time may be handling Baby New Year a bottle of scotch. It does feel a bit like that, doesn't it, in 2017? Or a suit of armour saying you're going to need this kid. I think that's true. There's some really interesting stuff going around on Twitter about finding me the right word for 2017 or the right image. It's not good. It's it's pretty harsh year. It's been a pretty interesting time. And if you're working certainly in my part of the world at this time of year, it's winter, flu's on the way. It's pretty tough too. Well, there we go. Three themes in this month's journal. Got geriatrics, paediatrics, and more on the demand for emergency care. So let's have a look at addressing demand first. And a demand which Ellen says is due to the excellent reputation of emergency practitioners worldwide. Um, you know, if we were a business, we'd make loads of money because we keep going up. <laughs> Our turnover goes up by 10% a year in the UK. We'd be lauded as a fantastic business opportunity. Doesn't feel that way because we don't get paid for the number of people we see. Unlike in some places, we have a lot of block contracts and stuff going on in the UK. It's quite difficult. But it's an interesting time. We are definitely getting busier. And it's because we give a lot of the time. We give a great service or a very quick service. We, you know, we're there for a reason. So anyway, Lung et al. have studied the impact of physician navigators on emergency physician productivity. Because productivity is kind of a word which is being buzzing around now for quite a while. You know, how do we get people to do more? Actually... Just beating them more wouldn't work. If we tried that, it doesn't work. Anyway, going back to the paper, important stuff. Navigators, what are they? They're non-medical personnel who minimise physician time spent on non-clinical tasks. So it's stuff like finding equipment, putting patients in exam rules, pulling up medication histories, filtering phone calls, paging specialists. You know, that kind of stuff which actually takes up a huge proportion of my day. And when working with a navigator, in this paper, emergency physicians saw an additional patient per hour 
despite a rise in patient volume during the study period, which I think is really important, actually. That's, that's a significant increase in the amount of patients that we would see in our department. And the turnaround time decreased by about 10 minutes. So, sound like a good idea? Well, yeah. But there's some cautionary stuff in there as well. So we've got a commentary by Mercury and Mondo reminding us that there are no silver bullets to meeting demand. There really isn't. I mean, just squeezing more out of the, the limited number of people there is not going to work. Because an examination of quality must be part of the equation if we increase productivity. You just don't want to see lots of people badly. You want to see them well. So similar caution extends to the use of scribes, and we've got a qualitative study by Cowan and colleagues looking at EPs who use scribes, and they reported that they reduced stress and improved productivity. Great. They also felt that having scribes in exam room forced them to explain things out loud, which also improved their communication with patients. I think I've seen some other data out there, not in, not in EMJ, that you do better, you make fewer mistakes. If you've got a medical student with you, probably the same sort of thing. It's probably a good thing. Um, physicians who preferred not to use scribes thought they negatively impact the doctor-patient relationship. I guess that's possible. But all physicians agree that synthesising the case in the chart before the end of a visit allowed the EP to think through their care before discharge and that those not using scribes missed this opportunity. No silver bullets, but I mean, some interesting stuff out there about decision-making, about how we do histories, about how we do communication, about how we do clinical care, and all of those things coming together. And I think it's really important because, you know, emergency medicine is a holistic job. It's all of those things. It's not just clinical. It's not just social. It's not just interaction. It's not just admin. It's important. So what next? Ellen calls it the silver tsunami is coming, and are we prepared? Some people object to the world silver tsunami. I thought it was quite funny when it came out, but... Um, I think there's also that objection among some people who say, well, you know, it's not that bad a thing that we're all growing older. That's what we're all hoping to do. I am too. I think it'd be great to, to live to a long time. But then I'll be part of the silver tsunami. We'll have been great for some time. Anyway, the point is the demographics of our populations are changing. and We're getting a much older population coming through the door. And I think most of us feel that and see it, in, certainly in Western um, and high-income countries. I mean, that's definitely what we're seeing. Now, look at Japan, where there's been massive changes in the demographics and how they see their health populations changing. So, in January issue, we've got two papers looking at older adults that suggest um, we're probably not prepared, actually. Editor Choice is a cluster randomised trial by May et al. involving eight EDs. They looked at patients over 65 with suspected long bone fractures, and they screened them for cognitive decline. So at the intervention sites, those that met the criteria of a cognitive decline underwent evaluation using a pain assessment tool in advanced dementia. Results? No good. It took a mean of 82 minutes for all patients in the study to receive pain medication, with no difference between intervention and control sites, even though the intervention site did perform pain scoring more often. So... Notably, 9% of the patients in the control hospitals and 12% in the intervention hospitals did not get any analgesia at all with long bone fractures. That doesn't sound good. In the end, authors found out that there were only 260 patients who actually met criteria for cognitive decline. And here, too, there's no significant difference in time to pain medication. I'll leave you to ponder new solutions for this literally age-old problem. And I think there was a paper, I can't remember the reference now, but there was a good paper in the EMJ from one of our local hospitals to me in Manchester looking at pain relief for fractionic femurs in patients with dementia, showing that we're not very good at that. So we need to stop thinking about this. Pain's, pain's often quite a good thing to look at in the emergency department. It's not the be-all and end-all. We've talked about that in other papers, but it is quite a useful mark to see how we're doing about a whole range of different things. Anyway, close second for Ellen's editor's choice this month was Harper et al. comparing two previously validated risk-fall screening tools for patients older than 65 coming into Australian EDs with any complaint. Unfortunately, found that neither tool was either sensitive or specific in predicting later falls, 
positive predictive values of 0.43 and 0.39, which is a bit rubbish. And study demonstrates that the importance of setting a population in the predictive value screening tools and thus how instituting screening programs in the ED may not always be value added. I put that to you that the next time somebody comes along with it, all we need is just a new form and a new scoring system, a new idea for this, and it'll be everything better in my emergency department. Well, the answer is, is there an evidence base for it? Does it work here? Do we know that it works? And if you're going to give me another form to fill in, which one of the other multiple number of forms which I already have to fill in are you going to take away? Unless you want to give me an assistant, as in the original papers that we were talking about some moments ago. You get my point. We can just get burdened with admin. If we're going to do additional administration, additional screen tools, we want them evidence-based so that we know that they work. This is really important. So where next? Pediatrics. Pediatrics is, well, I don't think it's a relatively new subspecialty in our field. Um, yes, I suppose the first people who went through pediatric emergency medicine training were my generation. So early 2000s were when they were coming up at consultancy post in the UK. There's the PREDICT Research Network in Australia and New Zealand, and they look at the wide range of paediatric emergency problems. It makes it difficult to determine where to direct research priorities in this group. So recently, they convened a group of over 100 experts to develop a list of the most important research priorities. In the end, 35 questions were prioritised, including the use of high-flow oxygen, done that this week, treatment of sepsis and asthma, done that this week, C-spine imaging, done that this week. So, relevant. Perhaps reflecting the fact that for so long kids were considered just little adults. Well, going to be a bit controversial here. They they are kind of little adults. I've never seen one grow into a hippo as yet. But I think they do grow into adults. But I get your point. We don't do things exactly the same in PED as we do in adult ED. And I work in both. And yes, there are differences. And some of those are really important. The list, in this case, is largely clinical, which I like in comparison to the recent priority setting in the UK for adult EM, in which half of them were actually focused on care delivery. I think that was interesting. That was the James Linda Lyons paper, um, Conflict of Interest, was an author on it, which looked at research priorities for adults. So interesting to compare these two. Of course, it's different countries, but it's different systems. You feel the pressure much more on the adult side of emergency medicine at the moment. So back to Ellen. What did she say? Illustrating the heterogeneity of paediatric EM are two studies looking at either end of the spectrum, both in age and setting. For those of us working in the Western world, severely ill paediatric patients are thankfully uncommon. That's very true. But in the limited resource setting, some of the sickest patients are those under five. And certainly some of my colleagues who are working in um, low and middle income countries, th that's much more their experience. And they have, they have a different, different view of paediatric emergency medicine, which I think is fascinating. And also we can learn huge amounts from them. So there's a study here from a large children's ED in Pakistan uh, where Habib and Khan report 8% of children were triaged as acuity 1. So I suppose that's our um, red standard with most under 5 and nearly half of them neonates. So really tiny ones. So overall, 13% of patients died in the ED. Wow. But death rate was highest in the neonates, 16.5%, accounting for 63% of all deaths, which is shocking, really. And many of those patients were malnourished. Most arrived without an ambulance. And clearly, well, we need more research and we need more resources. On the other side of the world, Ahmed et al. report the outcomes of a US study using audio-enhanced computer-assisted self-interview. Nice phrase. To ask adolescent and young adult patients, so this is the 15 to 21-year-olds, about sexual history and their willingness to be tested for sexually transmitted infections. Quick time out. 
What constitutes a paediatric emergency medicine department varies around the world. In the UK, it's up to 16. I think in the US, it can be up to 18. I think in some places, maybe in some places in the US, it can be up to 21. And when you're looking at data, that's really interesting to me because sometimes it goes, oh my gosh, there's a huge amount of penetrating trauma in these paediatric emergency departments, which we don't see a lot of. And it's because it's in that 16 to 21 age group. So always be careful when you're looking at PM papers to just make sure with the department that they're looking at, what is their age range, what they're taking in. So anyway, computer program identified a 419, so that's 800 enrolled in this, 1,337 were approached, but 419 who should be tested for STIs. That's interesting, even though most of the respondents did not have a chief complaint related to an STI. Not clear if this method is better than personal interviews, but if there's an app for that, then this is the age group to use it. And it may appeal to the reluctance for talking about certain subjects with even well-meaning adults. And I think that works both ways. I think the kids don't want to talk to the adults about it, and the adults don't necessarily want to talk to the kids about it. There's still that embarrassment factor. We should all get over it, but you know, let's accept that it's there. So this is an interesting way of doing it using a computer-assisted self-interview. Might get better data out of it. So that's, that's one to think about. And that could be relevant for a lot of other things that we do in the emergency department as well. Where do we go next? Is the patient ready for intubation? What do we mean by that? Well, fasciculations? Is the chest moving? Is the jaw slack? Well, we've got a Reader's Choice paper this year. So Kokimaro et al. compared using waveform capnography with physician gestalt to determine when a patient is sufficiently paralysed. Interesting. Physicians using waveform capnography had shorter time to intubation and a higher rate of first-pass success. Small study, only 100 patients, so no major conclusions about safety there. There's no objective measure of adequacy of paralysis which is a bit of a difficulty, and that could have contributed to the difference in outcomes. But, you know, it's a promising adjunct for RSI. The readers certainly thought so. That's why they've asked for it to be reader's choice. So fair enough, you can have a look at that and see what you think. I routinely use capnography when I'm putting people off to sleep in the ED, so it's not massively new to me, but using it in this way perhaps is. So there we go. That is the primary survey for January 2018 in the Emergency Medicine Journal. There's loads more in there, actually. You should go and have a look. Um, quite a lot of stuff. So we've got a few paediatric papers in this. We've got a nice review on skin and soft tissue infection management. Um, looking at failures in the emergency department. Nice paper there. And we've got the BETS, of course, looking at continuous flow insufflation of oxygen and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and looking at non-steroidals and chickenpox. That was a bit of a controversial one that came out about 18 months ago, I think. So that's worth a look to see what the evidence for that is, really. I'm going to guess... No, I won't spoil it. You should go and have a look and then have a think about what you prescribe next time you see somebody with chicken box. So thank you very much for your time and attention. Please have a look at the EMJ. Please have a look at the EMJ blogs. There's a really good one this, this month, as I said, which tells us a little bit about the strategy and direction and future travel of the EMJ. So have a wonderful 2018 and we'll speak soon. Bye.